No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of Banal of America, Summer of Strangeness. We're continuing onward here uh, with another what I think will be a fantastic edition of the program. Our guest tonight, I had the pleasure of, uh, I only briefly chatted with him. I regret my time at, at Fort Fest 2019. I didn't get a chance to talk to as many people as I would have liked. Uh, it was a very fast weekend, actually. Seen to go by very fast, but I had the the chance to meet him at Fort Fest uh, 2019 down in Baltimore, uh, and enjoyed his presentation quite a bit. And I've been following him on Twitter for a while now. And and when I was putting together the summer of strangeness, as I said last week on the show, I wanted to uh, talk to folks that haven't been on but all of America before and, and feature some new voices that uh, you know maybe we we haven't. We haven't talked to you uh, at all ever on the show. So uh, Justin Bamforth was on my list of guests, and luckily we got him here on the program tonight. Uh, he's an active investigator and a researcher into all uh, re- and a researcher into all angles of the paranormal. Uh, he's the author of I don't know how new it is. It's been out for a couple of years now. Uh, the book The Spectrum: Glimpses of the Paranormal and Encounters with the Strange. It contains a lot of really fascinating stories and a lot of firsthand perspectives on uh, stuff that he's investigated and people he's talked to that have had their own strange and unusual experiences. It's a really fascinating book, and uh, I just finished it this – actually, just finished like the last 20 pages this afternoon. So uh, uh, I've, been, I've been plowing through it this week and really enjoyed it quite a bit. So, And uh, he's also uh, got the website – let me see. Let me make sure I get it right here. Uh, it's Unnormal Paranormal, but uh, I don't know necessarily if I have the – it's always that last part you, you end up messing up, right, folks? Yeah, there it is. Yeah, see? normalparanormal.org. See, if I said normalparanormal.com, who knows where I would have sent you. Uh, but <laughs> he, He's got the website normalparanormal.org. Uh, there you can check out. He's got all kinds of stories about, uh, you know, abnormal stuff, strange and unusual, high strangeness, if you will. So uh, well, I'm looking forward to talking to him tonight. I think we're going to cover a lot of stuff we haven't really delved into much on Banal of America before. So, uh, And that's saying something since we've been around for so long. So it's going to be a great conversation. Welcome to the show, Justin. It's great to have you, buddy. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with the bio, the background. You know, who is Justin Bamforth, and uh, how did you, how, how did all this start? How did you get mixed up in all this? Yeah, well, as anyone um, who works in this field can tell you, Tim, you know, a lot of us, we don't choose to pursue the phenomenon. It 
tends to choose us for whatever reason. And, you know, like so many others, my origin story, if you want to call it that, it began at an yeah. early age as well. Um, however, it, it really wasn't until I started, you know, Normal Paranormal, um, which at first was just a little online private discussion group that I had going. And then it evolved into this much larger site, and think tank, blog, whatever you want to call it. Things really started to take off. And uh, people started writing in. They started sharing with me their experiences. I started posting up some other things. Um, so what you see on the site now at normalparanormal.org is um, – you know, another incarnation of, of that uh, name. Um, so I had all these stories. Um, I had my own personal experiences. It was enough to really kind of uh, pull together into a book and just kind of get it out there, um, share with other people, and hope that it just sparks discussion. You know, I may not have all the answers, but if I can get people to kind of like question things, maybe think about things from different perspectives, then I've done my job. All right. Uh, yeah, we got people in the chat saying they've got no audio, but uh, we seem to be going all right, and uh, Blog Talk says we're going okay. Um, very I'm weird. Men in black. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> very strange. Very strange. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. Uh, I'm just going to tell them to keep trying to refresh the page. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Some, look, you know, sometimes there are technical issues that, that – happen as a result of talking about this subject. Um, obviously, that's wishful thinking on my part, but you never know. You know it could just be somebody who doesn't know how to use this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, it says we're on and we're recording and everything, so we're going to just keep rolling, and uh, hopefully uh, the folks trying to get trying to hear it on the chat room. Uh, yeah, very weird. Yeah, it says, okay, well, we're going to just keep going because uh, there's nothing else we can do about it because the show says we're, we're, we're going all right. Um, well, one of the things I found interesting uh, right off the bat, starting the book was that uh, you – it's kind of reminiscent in a way of how I started out in, in a sense because I used to – I was always sort of not interested in using the word paranormal uh, mm-hmm. because it was like so overused. So it was always – I would always say at the esoteric until uh, people like complained mm-hmm. and I said it too much. So, <laughs> so what I thought was interesting – is that you, and this ties into the book, actually, uh, absolutely ties into the book, uh, you use the term the spectrum to sort of encompass all of this high strangeness. I guess elaborate a little bit on that, uh, you know, the term the spectrum, which I really like a lot. I was like, I was really digging that uh, when, I, when I read that in the book. Yeah, so, you know, these phenomena or whatever we call them, you know, from what I'm looking at it as they seem to be emanating from one place. You know, whether that place is physical, multidimensional, subconscious, or perhaps something else entirely, you know, it seems like it can take on wildly different shapes, sizes, forms that all seem to fit the perceptions and stereotypes that tend to reflect and mirror our own thinking and beliefs. So that's what I've kind of begun to identify as the spectrum or or this this wide gamut of of paranormal, supernatural, ufological, metaphysical, whatever you want to call it. It's all strange, and it takes on all these different forms. Yeah, it's a good it's a good catch all term. It's very difficult to sort of uh, capture all this in in uh, you know to try and try and narrow it down to something. So, I, like I said, I liked I like what you did there with that. Um, let me see here. Oh, I lost my train of thought. All kinds of craziness going on here already tonight. So you've had a lot of. Uh, well, actually, we, I, I kind of mentioned I should probably – I was going to mention this at the start of the show. It's kind of like 
we don't really cover news here, but you were a part of MUFON. So, I mean, what do you what do you think of all this craziness that's happened this week? With uh, are you still a part of MUFON? And and uh, and what do you what do you think of all this craziness that's happened this week <laughs> with MUFON? I don't want to put you on the spot on that one, but at the same time, it's like uh, you know, yeah. people are kind of uh, you know, you know how it is. Yeah, it's, you know, the organization, it goes through, you know, some highs and lows. Uh, you know, recent events have definitely taken it to a new low. Um, you know, I, I I trained, you know, I was thinking about becoming an official MUFON investigator at one point. Um, and then, you know, the more that I, you know, I sat in on a few of the boot camp sessions, but then the more I learned about the protocols and how they train their investigators, um, I, I kind of, you know, disagreed with some of it, um, and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go my own route. Um, yet at the same time, I still support a MUFON because it's a great place that I refer people to when they have a UFO sighting. Um, you know, I, I get reports all the time, so it's hard for me to kind of, like, investigate every single one, especially, like, you know, a bunch of your lights in the sky cases or, or, or experiences. Um, but I've always yeah. supported MUFON. I think they're a great organization. There's a lot of other cool UFO organizations out there, but MUFON is certainly the largest. Um, you know, I've, I've attended a lot of their events. I've, I've been in touch with a lot of their people, their leaders and all that. And uh, Jan Harzan was actually one of the guys that I interviewed for, for my book. And, um, you know, I didn't know him, uh, you know, as a, as a close friend or, or, or on any sort of, you know, real personal level. Uh, but, you know, I always thought that he was a respectful guy. He always showed me the, the time of day. Um, he always answered my emails when I sent it to him. Um, so I had no idea that, you know, he had this, you know, allegedly, this, this other um, thing that he was he's dealing with. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, and, and I really just hope that MUFON can, you know, bounce back, um, especially with all the controversy that has kind of, like, centered around them lately, um, not just this, but, you know, years prior. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of good people in there, and there's a lot of people who are devoted to this field. And, um, you know, I just hope that it doesn't get overshadowed and it doesn't dissolve. I mean, that, I think, would be would be the worst thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a dark week for ufology. That's probably a, uh, a good way to put it. One of the darkest mm-hmm. weeks we've had in a while. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, for folks who don't know what we're talking about, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it. Just de- uh, just Google MUFON and Jan Harzen and you'll... You'll find plenty of uh, articles and stuff about it, I think. Uh, so, you know, uh, just a just a dark situation. And, you know, it's like you alluded to. It's The, the organization has been battered over the last few years uh, by controversies in a sense of its own making. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think they need there needs to be, uh, I think coming out of this, there needs to be, in my opinion, like some kind of like, I wouldn't say reckoning, but like, there needs to be some kind of transparency, some kind of like, some kind of bold statement of of you know we're, we 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 recognize that this this organization has been taking a beating, and and uh, we're going to do our best to sort of like clean it up and turn it around and and uh, you know and be transparent and and all that stuff that that is necessary really to win back the trust. Um, you know, it went back the trust of uh, of the people in the UFO world who are who are really put off mm-hmm. by what's been going on over the last few years and especially this past week. So um, there you go. So I guess uh, yeah, no, the people in the chat still can't hear us. So we're gonna keep going. I I mean, it says it's recording, and so we're just gonna keep going. So so 
if by some <laughs> bizarre turn of events we uh, this episode ends up like missing somehow, um, you know, you and I'll figure it out. We'll do another one or something. I don't know, but uh, but it says it, the the vlog talk says we're we're rolling. So I don't know what is going on on their end. So anyway, we don't have um, we, we can't. There's nothing else we do. Okay. So right. Um, it's very disorienting when you're doing a show like live and then people are like I can't hear it I can't hear it it's like well we can't just stop the show and start over so you know it's like we gotta just go with what we got going on and uh, the thing says we're going so Um, now let's talk about one incident in the book Uh, I I have a theory on it I I didn't allude to it in the notes I sent you uh, because I didn't want I want to kind of pop it on you myself so tell this story about your visit to the cable company and the weird sort of weird uh, premonition that occurred while you were there. Right. Yeah. So that's uh, <laughs> that that took me by surprise for sure. Um, and a lot of times with with this phenomenon, like you know, you can't anticipate it. You can't you can't predict when something strange is going to happen. And a lot of times when you go looking for this, that's when it doesn't happen. It's always when you're least expecting it. And in this case, I was um, <laughs> I, I was really frustrated. First off, I was uh, you know dealing with a cable company that shall not be named, and um, you know there was an issue where uh, the apartment complex that I lived in um, they told me to keep the box, the cable box, in the apartment because they supplied the free cable. And meanwhile, this cable company was telling me I had to return the cable box. So um, I go to the call center just to kind of sort it out. And, you know, I remember, you know, being there uh, in the waiting area. And first off, they had bulletproof glass uh, separating the customers from the, oh, wow. uh, the, the employee. Yeah, so that should have been my first red flag right there. But, um, and it didn't help. So I'm already stressed out at that point. And then all of a sudden, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in there and I just get this, this feeling, just this really sinking suspicion that my car is going to get hit. And it came out of left field. I, why would it get hit? You know, I parked in a safe spot and I'm, I'm like rationalizing this in my mind. I'm like, why am I thinking this? You know, and I, it was like an overwhelming sense of dread, like something was going to happen here. Then um, I remember there was, um, if I recall, there was another person in the room, in that waiting room area. And then all of a sudden, uh, some other person came flying into the waiting room. And they came right to me and they said, um, you know, I forget exactly what vehicle I was driving, but I think in the book I referred to it as like a black Chevy, but like, you know, they came up to me and they're like, you're the one who drove the, who drives the black Chevy. Right. You know? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I guess. And then, um, the, per- the other person in the room, they said, Hey, that's my car. Um, or I'm sorry. Yeah. They had told me, they said, Hey, you drive this car. It wasn't my car. It was the other person's car. They recognized it. And then that person went out. So, uh, sure enough, they had hit their car. So I had in essence, a premonition meant for the other person in the room. So how is that possible? You know, I always thought that premonitions are meant for the person who has the premonition, right? Um, you know, I was talking with, um, a school teacher in Philadelphia, um, who happened to be my uh, my hairstylist at the time. And she was, you know, was uh, relating this this incident. And she told me, oh, my gosh, like a similar thing happened to me, too, um, where she had a premonition meant for somebody else. And uh, it, it's so funny that you bring this up because I was doing another show just last night. And 
that host before the show was telling me, hey, I read that part and the same thing happened to me. So is there something to this? Are people having premonitions meant for others? Um, you know, why is that? You know, again, I tend to think that maybe there's this connection with our mental state. You know, I was really stressed at the time. Um, the school teacher in Philadelphia was really stressed. Um, I still have to ask the show host if she was stressed, but it's really bizarre, right? Yeah, well, what's strange is here's the theory I had listening, uh, reading the the book. Now, um, mm-hmm. you you were really stressed out, and you were waiting to uh, you were waiting to to meet to talk to the guy at the thing, right? And uh, yep. the guy at the desk, and uh, you let someone ahead of you, right? And then you had the premonition that your car was hit, and then the guy came in and thought that he had hit your car, but it was actually the guy you had let ahead of you. I'm wondering if by you letting the guy go ahead of you, you inadvertently spared your car from the from the accident somehow. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, that that's a really interesting take on it. Very interesting. Um, you know, it's almost like well, it leaves you wondering, like if my, you know, quote unquote essence was still there and maybe he had somehow, I don't know, intercepted it or something, or maybe, I don't know. This, you, you brought up now a lot of questions for me to think about. This is great. I love it. And that's why. Yeah. Cause that was my first thought reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my first thought reading the, uh, reading that story. Cause it was like, you thought, uh, you thought, uh, you know, you thought, you thought your car was hit. You, I don't know. It just seemed like if you hadn't, if you had been in a spot where you had let the guy go, that guy's car was the one that hit was hit. So it's like, huh, that's weird, you know? Yeah, it's there's again with this, there's never any answers. There's just more questions, and it's both you know fascinating and frustrating beyond belief. But that that's great, Sim. Like now, now I got to think about this. Yeah, yeah, that was a very uh, odd story. That was a very odd story. Now, talk a little bit about uh, crisis apparitions. I thought this was really interesting um, because this is like uh, – there's a lot of stuff in the book that I hadn't really encountered before or heard about, uh, some really sort Mm -hmm. of nuanced characters, if you will. So, you know, but uh, talk about this this phenomenon of crisis apparitions. Yeah, so um, crisis apparitions is one of those things that you don't hear about a whole lot, but it's – it could be in essence like a, like a bi-locality thing. It's where um, somebody will report seeing a ghost or, or an apparition, if you will, of somebody. Um, and it's, I've heard reports that it, it'll happen. Like, for example, you'll have like a Jane Smith, like hanging in her house doing dishes. And then all of a sudden she'll see the apparition of her husband in the kitchen. And she'll be like, what, what are you doing here? Like uh, you're home from work early or whatnot. Unbeknownst to her, her husband is involved in a car wreck several miles away. And for whatever reason, it seems like there's this connection between traumatic events and um, the, the people that are witnessing these apparitions. Um, there's this connection. Um, now, what is that? The, you know, in essence, if you want to go by the classic definition of a ghost or an apparition, that would be a ghost or an apparition, Right but they're not deceased. So it kind of like changes the whole view of what a ghost is. Um, but they, they tend to uh, show up during these crises or these moments of, of extreme trauma. Um, and one of these 
uh, great examples is um, involving a woman named uh, Rhea Baker, who I had interviewed, and she didn't want to reveal her, her full name because she was still going through med school at the time. But um, she was in the midst of a residency at a hospital in uh, Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, working the overnight shift when a man came in who had apparently OD'd on, on heroin and was brought in unconscious. Now, um, it was suspected that the man had undergone like these violent seizures since uh, the first responders who discovered his body discovered it like just contorted in all sorts of these awkward positions. So um, they brought him into the ER to do surgery, right? So yeah. later that same night, Rhea was um, walking the floors at about, I don't know, like one or two in the morning, and she noticed the same man out in the hallway. Um, but this time the man was in a wheelchair and just staring down. So she went up to him and, uh, you know, she said something along the lines of like, you know, can I do anything for you? And the man just looked up at her and uh, just shook his head. And for some reason, uh, Rhea just you know, kind of like patted him on the shoulder and walked away. Now, I bring this up because with these phenomenon or these phenomena, it's people respond in the strangest way. They respond out of character. And this is something that readmitted to me that she would have never done. You know, usually she would have, you know, uh, just taken him back to his room or got another nurse to assist. But um, she just, you know, patted him on the back, walked away. 20 minutes later, she hears code blue, which um, is apparently a cardiac arrest alert and the room number. So she goes in there and it's the same room number as the man she had seen just moments prior in a wheelchair. But the thing is, according to the records, this man never regained consciousness. And he also had both of his legs amputated to the knee and one arm amputated to the elbow. So how on earth did she see this man fully intact with all of his limbs just moments ago when that couldn't have been. And, you know, according to the records, the man had never been responsive in any way. Um, so what, what did she see? Now, she was not close to this man. So that kind of like throws the whole, um, you know, personal connection off. Why her? She is an empath. She does have abilities. So maybe she was just on the right wavelength that night to see him. I don't know. Um, it, it's bizarre, but again, it leaves you wondering: what is a ghost? Yeah, yeah. Well, that your your book brings up that question a lot, in a sense, where it's like these are there are a lot of different, like you just described, there are a lot of different uh, forms that are almost like non-traditional ghosts that we know of. You know, it's a, sort of like the idea of like. Uh, you know the classic sort of ghost where it's like it can see you and it's, a, it's from the you know it's a deceased person or uh, it's sort of a stone tape theory like those are the two main ones but you like these crisis apparitions like a whole different animal it's a whole mm -hmm. different uh, type of uh, entity if you will it's very flummoxing very confounding yeah absolutely and that kind of really you know, people always ask me, well, you know, do you believe in ghosts? Well, I, I can't answer that because I don't know what a ghost is. You know, do I think it's a deceased individual? Yeah, sometimes. Um, do I think it's a psychic imprint or something tied to, you know, projected manifestation that somebody inadvertently does? Eh, sometimes. Could it be an aspect of time travel or time slips? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it's all of these things. It's not quite... This isn't quite a, a black and white issue. It's, it's very complex. It has a lot of layers to it. And 
you know, I always encourage paranormal researchers to kind of, and investigators to, to branch out, to kind of rethink what they believe these things to be. And um, maybe then we'll actually get somewhere in the field. Who knows? I thought it was really interesting, too, that uh, over the course of the book, you detail a fair amount, not just that incident at the cable uh, company, but a lot of interesting – you've had a lot of experiences. Uh, why do you think it is that you've had so many unique experiences? Because I've never had any anything really out of the ordinary, that even book-worthy uh, and it, it happened to me, so it's like uh, so I was reading the book. I was like, "Geez, this guy has, has a lot of has a lot of weird stuff happen to him." Yeah, and and it's like I said, it, it happens when you least expect it. You know, when I when I'm out looking for things, I never experience anything. It happens when I'm you know, not looking for it, but I could be focused on it. Um, you know, there. Are, it also happens to people connected with me as well, um, which is which another aspect that we can get into with like men in black and such. But it's like um, to answer that question, I don't know. You know, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm thinking about these things so often that I kind of like send out like a beacon into the, uh, the supernatural world and say, "Hey, here I am." But yeah, you know, or maybe or maybe it's maybe it's something tied you know generationally. You know, um, you know when you look at people who have had a lot of experiences, it seems to run in their family. And that's one of the questions I started asking when I interview them. You know, uh, tell me a little bit about your family history. You know, have, have you always had experiences? Have your parents had experiences? What about your grandparents? You know, when we look at um, uh, the alien abduction phenomenon, uh, that seems to be the case. So is there something, you know, that's tied to a, a family lineage in a way? Um, maybe. Um, can you invited in if you're kind of like conjuring these things up. Yeah, that's another possibility too. Um, you know, there was a time when, you know, I was going on a lot of cases and, and after I would be finished the cases, things would follow me back and they would just linger around for, you know, a couple of days at a time and then they would just dissipate. Um, you know, why is that? It's almost like a, like a paranormal debris or like a residue, if you will. Um, Again, it, it, there's so many questions. Like, I don't know. I can only offer speculation. I can only offer theories. But I've noticed that there is a pattern with certain people that seem to be uh, predisposed to this, and they seem to have more experiences than others. Um, so it, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Part of me wonders if it's like you're more open to receiving them or something like that. Um, but I'm not sure. Like, it's, it's all open to speculation, you know, because uh, – yeah. Or maybe it's like once you've had a few, it kind of opens the door to more stuff happening. You know what I mean? So I've never had anything yeah. happen, so it's like I uh, the door is not quite open enough for me or something like that. Yeah, it, it, it could be. Um, it could also, you know, could be tied to, um, you know, how we view the world, too. Um, you know, for example... You know, I tell people that, that I am a very, you know, spiritual person. You know, I consider myself a Christian. You know, um, when I've been praying in certain uh, respects, I've had experiences, um, which, which is really interesting. Um, you know, I've been, I've, I mean, here's, here's one. I, I was walking on the street one time, and I was praying for somebody. And uh, there was a man who was, who was walking towards me. He just looked like a normal man. And I literally looked down for a split second, looked up, and he's gone. You know, I, I did not recognize this man, but where I was walking, there was a huge building to our 
to the side of, of where we were. Uh, unless he jumped like, you know, 50 feet into the air and left over the, the top of the building, you know, where did he go? I, I don't know. Right. He literally vanished. You know, I can't explain that. I, I don't know why. And there was, in my mind, there was no point as to why that happened. Uh, so, you know, a lot of these things happen. We, we, we have no answers. But the experiences seem to be tailored to certain, um, it, it, for certain people. So it's almost like when you have an, when, when somebody has an experience, as investigators and researchers, we have to kind of like not focus on the experience itself, but look at how that experience transformed the witness or the experiencer. You know, how did it reshape their thinking? Maybe that's why the experience took place to begin with. So maybe there's, you know, I don't want to get all new agey, you know, I, I'm not, who knows, but maybe there's, you know, maybe there's a journey that, I don't know, that you have to be on at some point, and then you'll start to notice a lot of these things. I, I don't know. Again, all speculation. Right, right. It's very, uh, it's very odd. So when, wh- when did you, I guess, how long and sort of when have you, when did you start doing these sort of on-site investigations? Because it's a very uh, – and I know this isn't really in the notes we talked about, but it's sort of uh, just mm-hmm. something that piqued my interest just now. So, like, what – when did you start doing these, and how long have you been doing on-site investigations? I guess talk a little bit about all that stuff because I don't talk to too many sure. people on the show who have done – I think we had John Tenney on, like, three weeks ago, and he, you know, he's done, like, thousands of those. But aside from John and a mm-hmm. handful of other folks uh, like the Newkirks um, – you know, we've only had like maybe five or six guests at most who have who have done these on-site investigations, and I find them fascinating. I've only done like two of them, and they they didn't, as I as I alluded to earlier, that nothing happened. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> you know, so to me, it's like I'm fascinated by people who have done them and had had interesting stuff happen. So, I guess talk a little bit about how you got into doing that. You know, how many you've done some of the more memorable incidents, I guess, uh, that that occurred while you were doing these. You know. Or, 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 you know, like whatever your favorite right. one is or most memorable. Well, you know, I, I can tell you I certainly haven't done thousands, you know, so um, yeah, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I've done a lot. <laughs> I've done a lot less, but, you know, I, I started going out, you know, in my when I was approaching like 18, you know, um, I started connecting with a lot of local paranormal groups and started kind of like learning the ropes, um, started going out to like a lot of historical places, a lot of haunted locations, kind of getting my feet wet, so to speak. And then, you know, word gets around, hey, this, this guy is interested in these things. This guy is doing these investigations. Um, and then, you know, uh, friends started inviting me uh, to, to their other friends' houses who were having activity. And then, before you know, I'm doing a lot of res- uh, residential cases. And I, I really I prefer the residential cases because, you know, you're really helping somebody. You're, you're, or I should say you're looking to help somebody. You're looking to kind right. of like consult uh, with somebody and, and help them to better understand what is taking place. Now, a lot of times, nothing is taking place. A lot of times, it's wishful thinking. People, you know, they want their house to be haunted or they want to have experiences. Um, a lot of people are like, I, I want to be abducted. Why you would wish that? I don't know. But, uh, you know, a lot of it can be explained away under normal uh, circumstances. Um, but every once in a while, they'll come away with a case that, um, can easily be explained away, um, at least not under normal circumstances. So those fascinate me. Um, you know, I, I use that as a way to kind of, you know, connect with people. But 
here's something you don't really hear about um, with investigators is, you know, you, when you do an investigation, right? Yeah. You get to go home at the end of the night. You get to go home to your beds, your safe, you know, place. People who are enduring these things, uh, they don't have that luxury. They have to deal with it. So it's the it's the responsibility of the investigator to stay in touch with those people and to what I consider, you know, form like a lifelong um, uh, friendship with them because you never know when that activity will suddenly come back. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, this is like Ghostbusters, right? You just bust them and they're, they're done. You put them in an ecto containment unit and that's it. Well, no, it's not the case. Um, sometimes this activity is tied to the people. Sometimes it's tied to the location. Um, it's really hard to tell a lot of times. Sometimes there's mental illness involved. Sometimes there is both, um, you know, but I, I connect with a lot of groups. Um, you know, a lot of groups come to me, a lot of in, in independent investigators come to me as well. And they say, hey, we have this case. We'd like your input. We'd like your perspective. Um, because, again, I'm looking at it from, from the whole spectrum of activity, you know, what, yeah. what is taking place. And sometimes you find out that you have a UFO investigator there just interviewing them about the UFO sighting. They won't think to ask about the paranormal stuff. And that happens a lot or, you know, vice versa with paranormal investigators. So I've been on a lot, enough cases to where I think that there is something happening here. Again, I can't tell, I can't say definitively what it is. Um, some of the most memorable cases I've been on, um, you know, <laughs> They're far and few in between. You know, a lot of this is boring. You know, like you've experienced, yeah. you know, you're sitting in a room for hours on end, nothing's happening, nothing will. Maybe there's, there's like a second of activity that, that takes place. It's not like the TV shows. But every once in a while, you'll get a case. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, nowadays, I don't do nearly as many cases. Most of the time, it's me uh, talking with somebody and, you know, they're just calling me up or they're emailing me um, and they just want to understand w why they're experiencing things, why it's taking place to them, it, maybe pinpoint or, or, or better understand, um, you know, the triggers, you know, what, what could have caused it. Um, they're just looking to understand it a little bit more. You know, it's, it's very intrusive for people to have a whole team of investigators into a location you know, tearing up the place, you know, with all their high-tech equipment. You know, it's not, yeah, what, yeah. it's not what people are looking for, you know. So my role has kind of changed over the years, um, less investigating, more consulting. And uh, I, I prefer it that way. But every once in a while, I, I will go out, and um, obviously not now in, in these crazy times, but, uh, but I'll go out, I'll meet with people. It, it's a process. It, it's definitely a process. It seems like that. It seems like that. Now, you tell a story in the book that is absolutely uh, riveting, and this is the Lawrence Miller case. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I take it this is someone that contacted you with this, with this story, and um, I was, I was like mm -hmm. on the edge of my seat reading this story. So share this account um, you know, as best you can with, sure. the, with the listeners and get an understanding of sort of, I guess you could say, the kind of stuff that you consult on like was this guy just sort of reaching out to you to be like hey listen to this crazy thing that happened to me justin uh mm -hmm. i don't know what to make of it it's kind of what he was how he was framing it right yeah well you know it's really interesting because again i mentioned earlier on in, in this show you know when i started normalparanormal.org 
it went through a lot of different, you know, reiterate or iterations of the site. And one of those iterations, um, I, I had asked people to help contribute articles to the site because I, I thought it was important to get other people's perspective. And one of these guys who was following me on Twitter, um, you know, I refer to him as Lawrence Miller, I'm not his real name, but he was an avid reader of the site. And, um, you know, he, uh, he contacted me and, and he expressed interest in writing the topic. So I said, sure, you know, what's it going to, what's it going to be about? And he mentioned living in a haunted house, uh, scenario that had taken place not too long after, um, after he wrote to me. So, okay, no problem. He sent me a draft. Um, you know, again, I had no clue what this was going to be about. And he just <laughs> touched on the effects of it, you know, how it really bothered him and how it really um, messed, messed him up. And at that point, I, I knew that there was something to this. And uh, again, he wasn't looking to get into the details, but I thought it was intriguing. So I asked him if I could interview him more in depth about it. Now, he was extremely reluctant at first, but when I mentioned, you know, uh, later that it would be for a book, and it might possibly help others um, in whatever it is that they're dealing with, step forward too, you know, he finally agreed. But when I interviewed him, uh, he had a very tough time telling me about it. You know, for your listeners, here's the general synopsis. Um, this guy, he took a promising job offer in South Carolina, and so he relocated his family from Houston, Texas, all the way there. But um, when, he, when he moved into the new house, things kind of took a turn for the worst, and these unusual occurrences just like escalated into full-blown sightings of what I would describe as like demonic imp-like creatures. And they tormented Lawrence and his wife daily um, for, for a long time. They lived in the house for two and a half years, which they found out later was the longest that anybody had ever lived in that house. Um, so he retreated back to Texas after that. And he... Um, it, it messed him up. I mean, he, he was diagnosed with having uh, PTSD from the incident. Um, and then I found out later on that it actually, you know, apparently he got, if I recall, like an MRI done um, after he moved back to Texas. And they noticed that the, the one receptor in his brain that responds to fear literally got fried. Um, so wow. how do you make that up, right? Like, how do you, how do, you do that? So when I interviewed him, it, 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 you could tell in his voice that he was still struggling. And um, because as he was telling it, all of these memories are coming back, you know, coming back up again. You know, this, again, for your audience, this, this ruined this man's life. You know, this is not a pleasant haunting. This was not like a movie. It did not have a happy ending. He ended up getting a divorce. Um, the haunting pushed him to, to drink. Um, it was, it was terrible and, um, he still suffers from it, but talking about it more actually helps him because it helps him to process these things. Um, you know, it's a sad tale, but I guess in a way it has a, a kind of a positive ending. Um, you know, it actually, um, led him to join a paranormal group in Houston then, uh, where he could then help other people. And I've noticed when people, um, endure these things. Again, if we're talking about the transformative effects of these experiences, people either, you know, they, they run from it or, or just pushes them to the brink of darkness or they, um, they look at it from a more positive angle and they use it to help other people. And this, in this case, here was a man who, who did. Um, he used it to help other people. And uh, because 
when he was experiencing it, he didn't know who to go to. You know, he had a right. Jewish faith, but his, um, you know, his, uh, his faith had no leaders um, who wanted to deal with it. So he went to, you know, the Catholic Church, and it seems like they're the only ones who, who are equipped to dealing with this, but it didn't work. Um, he approached it from a Native American, you know, perspective with the, you know, with all the rituals and such. That didn't work. Nothing worked. So what, what do you do? You know, when you're when you ha- when you've exhausted all your resources and all your all your health out there, wh- what do you do? Who do you go to? Um, fortunately, other people now can go to him. And since the book was published, um, he also has his own podcast. And he, uh, I went on his podcast, and he, uh, he 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 came public with it, and he told his audience, you know, that he was the person portrayed in the book, and um, he still doesn't like to make a big deal of it, but uh, but yeah, it's um fascinating account so that's kind of how i met how i met him yeah it's very uh it's very troubling and has anyone uh has has anyone like gone back to this place to investigate it um you know since the stories come out since he's told his story because uh, it seems like it would be rife for someone to check out if, if it's like this recurring thing Wherein, you know, everybody who's lived at the property every two years, uh, uh, you know, bails out on it. Seems like it would be – it has the repeatability that you're looking for in the paranormal in a sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, to my knowledge, nobody has looked into it. Um, I have the address. It's on my to-do list of things. Um, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is write a letter uh, to to the house to see if anybody responds. Um, you know, it's – it's a very troubling thing, but then again, I also have to be very cautious too, because if I have this, you know, beacon out there, you know, is the activity gonna gonna hone in on me? You know, it, it's something that, you know, the, the supernatural tends to get uh, underestimated, um, especially in its power. You know, a lot of times we like to think that we're in control or that we can, you know, bathe ourselves in a white light and be protected or, or whatnot. But yeah. Um, Let's be honest. It, whatever it is, is in control, and it will do whatever it damn well pleases. Um, you see that at places like, you know, hot, hot spots like a Skinwalker Ranch. You know, they still can't explain what's going on out there, but it has affected people on a physical level, emotional level, uh, you know, a psychological level. It's, it's uncanny. This stuff is dangerous. Let's be honest. It's very dangerous, and it does follow certain people. Fortunately, in, in Lawrence Miller's case, it did not follow him. It stayed centered on the property, but who's to say it won't follow somebody else? So, again, you know, there's a lot of questions I have to ask myself, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, be careful, for sure, because it sounded like one of those, uh, like a troubling sort of thing. It, you got to really steal yourself if you're going to look, look into it. But it, it yeah. uh, definitely felt like something, like I said, it had that – repeatability factor where it's like most of the time you're not necessarily sure what you're going to get, but if this keeps happening all the time to everybody who moves in, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to who lives there now to see if they're experiencing anything that might, like you said about writing a letter, it's like, that might be the night, the, the best thing to do. Cause they may, they may be sort of wandering around in the wilderness right now, uncertain as to what the hell is happening. And right. they may not even know, because, you know, the address isn't in the book or anything. Like, even the town or whatever isn't in the book, I don't think. Um, so 
So it's like they, you know, they would have no idea that they're living in this haunted house that's been written about and everything else. So it would be, you know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe with the letter, send them, uh, just, just tear out the chapter <laughs> of the book and send that with them and be like, yeah, this is your house. This is your house that yeah. uh, is mentioned in the book. So if anything's going on, call me. Um, you know, maybe we can we can get to the bottom of it. Yeah, um, it, it, this is definitely not a case closed. That's for sure. So yeah, absolutely. It sounds it sounds fascinating. Um, and there are you know there are sort of stories of these like demon houses uh, in various parts of the country. So it's not like completely unheard of that there are these sort of houses that are just uh, you know nightmare experiences to live in. Uh, various people mm-hmm. experience them as they as they move in and out of the place. So it's like, oh, it's clearly the property, something off about it. Um, now, at one point mm-hmm. you talk about uh, that you – I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, but you don't do investigations as, as much, uh, that you reevaluated your purpose um, in the field. I guess talk about sort of that decision that that you made and, and what went into that. Yeah, so the more I, I talk with people um, over the years, and, and it's interesting because some groups, they have me talk to the people – now it's just to kind of get like an overview, an overview rather, um, before they go investigate. Um, you know, again, it's, you know, when you when you interview a witness or an experiencer of of the phenomenon, like it may not, they may not reveal everything that has ever happened to them during your initial conversation. Um, that's why I like to keep the dialogue open and the conversation going. In a lot of these cases, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the events continue to occur long after that initial experience, you know, has officially ended. Um, a great example of this is, is the case of uh, Shane Sovar, who, who I talk about in my book. You know, he's a guy who had a UFO experience and some haunting activity, and then a man in black encounter, or, or men in black, rather, which was even caught on camera. Um, I met uh, up with him and his wife back in December of, oh, man, we're in 2020 now. I think it was December 2018, maybe, um, after the book had been published. And his wife started telling me even more stuff that that took place, which I had not been privy to at the time. So, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. It's like people will only tell you what what you're asking, but there's so much more, and you kind of have to you have to gain their trust, right? It's like if you if you go out, you know, and and, and you meet somebody new, you're not going to tell them your whole life story. You have to feel comfortable with them first. And with right. a lot of these uh, a lot of these strange things. People don't know how to process it, and they're still, you know, trying to wrap their heads around it. So it takes some time. So I, I, I encourage others who are, in, who are involved with this, you know, be patient with the person. You know, they may be reluctant to open up to you, but just take some time, get to know them as a, as an, as a human being, as an individual, and then they'll share with you things that are really fascinating. Um, you know, another Another case I looked at in the book was the Gary Sudbrink case. And um, this is a man who had a, a, he had some weird phone calls to his residence. And he had some strange uh, events throughout his life. But um, I actually uh, t- was talking with his, um, his father and his, his one brother um, last year. And it was, it, was, it was fascinating because they had more experiences um, that they had not shared with anybody. And I was like, wow, this is, again, this is a family who has had, uh, seems to follow certain families. So, you know, I just, I tell people, keep it open, keep the discussion open. Um, that's what I've learned. And, and, and I love it. I love talking with people, meeting with people. Um, 
just seeing what their story is. And, um, you know, I, again, I can't prove it. I can't disprove it. I wasn't there when it happened. That's not my job anymore. Um, my job is just to listen and just to put it out there in the hopes that it, it, it may be something that encourages somebody else to come forward with saying, hey, look, I've experienced that too. I just never knew that I thought I was the only one. Um, and then they'll share their story. You know, it's like the doppelgangers. I know those stories are out there, but you rarely hear about them, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. that's why I included some of these stories in the book. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I've i said this before in the past. Like, you look at people like um, – it's a very – and I'm sure it happens, I guess, with the haunting people too. I'm not as deeply invested in that realm as I am um, with the UFO world. But it's like you talk about – like somebody who's been abducted by aliens, you know, it's um, – they immediately, they're not necessarily, to a lot of people who are researching this, they're not like, I mean, they're people, obviously, they're people, but at the same time, they're like a specimen, and they're like someone to be studied, almost, and it's, a, it's I can imagine that it's a very off-putting experience for someone, not only you've been abducted by aliens, but now you're sort of the subject of, of this fascination of researchers or a group of people or who are pouring, you know, are doubting your story or pouring over your story and sort of put you under a microscope. And it's like, so you're like almost doubly traumatized in a way. And I can imagine that's the same for somebody who's experienced a haunting and everything like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we have to be very, very delicate in, in interacting with these people and approaching them. You know, I've reached out to lots of people and they just flat out just denied me you know they're they're not interested in talking to me they're not interested in sharing their story with anyone um you know a lot of people seem to just be very afraid of, of how the public is going to respond to their story and and rightfully so you know you brought up you know with alien abductions i mean there's there's this stereotype with that and this stigma you know still um in, in talking about it that you're going to have all these things done, you know, these anal probes and, and you're going to, you know, you're a wacko, you're part of the new age crowd. And it just isn't the case. Um, but yet that's what, that's how the public views this a lot of times. Um, and especially the stuff that you can't easily categorize. Um, people just have a tough time dealing with this. And I've, I've made a lot of friends in this field, but I've also lost a lot of friends too as a result of it. So um, it's disturbing. I won't lie. It's a very disturbing subject. And there are times that I wish I wasn't involved with this. I wish I was just leading a normal life, you know, where instead of talking to you on this show, I could be out at a nightclub or something, you know, having a good yeah. time. Um, it just doesn't seem to be the case. I'm, I'm brought into this for whatever reason. And, um, you know, I, I end up connecting with people, um, sometimes under the most uh, synchronistic of of, uh, of circumstances, which also blows my mind. It's almost like, you know, people are led to other people. It's, it's this, this other part of the, of the phenomenon that I've started to, to look at now. Um, yeah. you know, why are things happening the way that they do? Again, it gets into philosophical discussions and, and all sorts of other questions, but yeah. Well, at the risk of dredging up, painful memories you mentioned that a few times in the book that you've lost friends uh because of the uh -huh. because of your research like how did that how how did if like i said i don't want to like uh poke at a nerve or whatever but like you do mention in the book a few yeah. times and it's, it's 
strike me as interesting uh, and, and something I kind of made a mental note of where it was like, oh, that's, you know, that's disappointing, but like, I don't, but I don't necessarily, it hasn't occurred, hasn't happened to me. So I'm wondering what, how exactly did this, did that happen? Uh, or, you know, what, give me sort of an idea of, of what you mean by having lost friends because of your work in the field. Well, I mean, a lot of times people think, you know, they, they believe what they see on the movies and, and they think that the phenomenon operates in a super scary manner, right? It's there to terrorize people. In some cases, yes, that, that may be. But a lot of it is not like that. It, it, it tends to be very startling. It tends to be very um, unpredictable and sporadic. Um, but again, it's that, it's that control aspect. And we as human beings, we like to be in control. We like to know what's going to happen next. That's why a lot of times people are so afraid of this topic because it's the fear of the unknown. They don't know what it is, let alone how it operates. So sometimes when I'm talking about this subject to people, strange things can happen right before our eyes. And, um, you know, it could be just coincidence. A lot of times it is. But every, every once in a while something will happen where I have to be very careful, you know, um, and I just, I just laugh it off. Eh, yeah, it's just, you know, whatever. Um, but there, you can tell, you can see it in their face. They're shaken up or, you know, or shook by this, you know? Um, yeah. my ex, my ex-wife, she, um, you know, she believed that this stuff does happen. Um, she witnessed a lot of it happen in our home and it was very unsettling for her. And, uh, I could just see the look on her face during a lot of these things. And it was, it wasn't cool, but again, I'm not in control of that. You know, these things happen on, on their terms. So, you know, it, it, it fascinates some of us in the field, but we, we have to keep in mind the public at large is not fascinated by it. They are scared yeah. of it. Um, that's probably why they don't get into this. That's why they don't talk about it a lot. That's, that could be why, again, this is just a theory, why news media tends to, uh, well, not, not nowadays with the UFO subject, but, but before that, um, they used to turn this into a mockery, right? If you go to like a scary movie and, and you watch the crowd's reaction to scary scenes, they will, they will jump, but then they'll also laugh. And I've noticed right. that there yeah, is yeah. a, yeah, it's a way to process the fear. So I've always wondered if perhaps news media is doing the same thing. You know, they turn into a joke because it helps them to process it, to keep it kind of like at a distance. Like, ah, it's just nonsense. Cue up the X-Files music. The thought. That's a great point because I, yeah, that's a big complaint about the media coverage of the paranormal. But then when you think about it, that is kind of like how people react to things that are frightening is, is they kind of like laugh it off. So it's, uh, you know, they, they have a laugh afterwards. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One of the, Another point you make in the book that I really – that resonated with me was that you you note know how one of the big complaints is like, oh, people see a UFO or they see a ghost or whatever or a Bigfoot or something. It's like, well, why didn't they take a picture? And it's like, well, look, at if you if you encountered something, you didn't know what it was. And like if, I think if somebody jumped out of a dark alley at you uh, while you're walking down the alley, like you, your first thought wouldn't be, I need to take a picture of this thing. It would be like, I need to I need to make sure that I'm safe. I need to respond in a in a way that ensures my safety. And so no wonder, like, a lot of people don't take pictures of this stuff. So it, it, it that sort of resonated with me in a way. It's like that makes a lot of sense that 
I haven't really heard it explained in a way before. So uh, kudos to you on that observation in the book. Thanks. Um, now, another observation you make, uh, which I found interesting, this is sort of a little bit inside baseball, but uh, I, I, I've i been to a, a lot of different conferences. I haven't been to enough ghost events to really take in sort of the feel of them. Uh, I've been to sort of general events, sort of like the Fort Fest where we met and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Strange Realities Conference last, last year in Nashville was kind of like a, a multi-pronged event also. So I haven't been to really one of these pure ghost events. I really do want to go and check one out. And there's a lot around here in New England. Maybe once this uh, this pandemic thing comes to an end and there's more <laughs> conferences again, I'll be able to check one out. But you, you make an observation uh, that I think I, that, that I'm interested in finding out more of, that you say that the, the structure and sort of the presentation of the two different types of conferences, UFOs and ghosts, are there's a distinct difference between the two types of conferences. So I guess tell me a little bit about about your observations on that because uh, I haven't necessarily yeah. been schooled enough in the in the two different types. I've been to a lot of UFO events and a fair amount of uh, cryptozoology events, so I can kind of get an idea of the tenor between those two. But but uh, as far as the ghost ones go, your, your book really made me think to myself like I need to go to one of these ghost <laughs> events because I've never been to a ghost conference before. So. Uh, I definitely want to go check one out now, having read the book. But tell me, tell me, sort of your observations on the differences between these these gatherings, if you will. Yeah, well, um, it's really interesting because with the UFO events, and you can certainly speak to this, it seems to be they're approaching it very scientifically. You know, and and scientific, I you know, very loosely, you know, um, but but more scientific than a lot of these paranormal uh, events or, or paracons, if you will. Um, you know, the, the people presenting their, um, their data are very, you know, they're, um, they're presenting it in a way that's, that's very, um, very dry. You know, it's very, um, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, and I don't mean to slam any, any of the, the people involved, but it's like they're focused on the data. And with, um, you know, the, the presentations and everything, with the paranormal events, it's more of like a social gathering. It's, it's more of like, hey, this is kind of cool. This is, this is unique. This is neat. It's fun. Um, and I've always wondered if perhaps that's because there's a lot more paranormal uh, entertainment out there. Um, and it's kind of made it kind of like a hip thing. Uh, now, we, we have to think prior to all of these shows, right, prior to the paranormal entertainment movement, if you will, um, yeah. if you were involved with the paranormal, you were considered uh, practicing black magic or involved in the occult and, and witchcraft and all that stuff. You were like, that was taboo, right? That wasn't cool. Um, now it seems to be kind of like a little bit, a little trendy. Um, with the UFO stuff, I still don't think it has really caught on yet. And it hasn't really been cool. Um, it's cooler, if you will, but it's, yeah. uh, it attracts yeah. a different type of audience. It attracts a much older audience um, that, that grew up with a lot of this stuff. But I tend to think in, in some respects, the UFO field is in danger of dying off because when I go to both of these events, I see a totally different crowd. I see a much younger crowd at the paranormal events than the UFO one. Yet really, it should be the same crowds going to both. Um, 
I rarely see an older crowd at the paranormal events. Um, you know, why is that? You know, this is, this is all high strangeness. Um, and we need to approach it as that. You know, I, I had a, a, a good conversation with Colonel John Alexander at a, at a MUFON conference one time that he was speaking at. And he, he had mentioned, you know, let's just have a strange experiences conference. Let's not label it anything, not a UFO con, not a paranormal con, nothing. Let's just look at it at face value for what it is. Let's look at the data. Let's present it in such a way that is um, that engages the audience and gives them some information. You know, it, it's it, it's really it, it's it's fascinating, but it's also unfortunate. And uh, I, I love going to both for different reasons, but I think that both of them could do better um, blending this um, these these various fields and for goodness sake, invite the, the cryptozoological researchers to your conferences, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, because they're studying this, and they're coming across interesting findings. Like when we were at Fort Fest, right, with, uh, with, with Timothy Renner and uh, Joshua Cutchin. They're working right. on a book. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's been released yet, but it was looking at all of the, um, the underreported aspects of, uh, of, of cryptozoology, of the Bigfoot. Um, there's a lot of paranormal tie-ins with that, a lot of UFO tie-ins with that. That is what we should be looking at. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I kind of did not become a formal MUFON investigator because they train their investigators. I don't know if this is still the case, but just to look at the experience that they reported, and that's it. Do not take an interest into the, in the person's life or dive into their whole backstory. Um, and I understand why they would, they would have it as a protocol. You know, some people would just keep on talking. Um, but there could be some, some clues in that backstory. You know, if, yeah, if yeah. you're the, the witness is key to the whole thing. So, yeah, you got to kind of, yeah. it's almost right. like as, as, it, as risky as it is that you're going to just spend too long talking to them. It's like that, right. you know, that might just be, that might be the key to the whole thing. So it's, to dismiss it out of hand is like that's that's not counterproductive, I think, or it is counterproductive. Yeah, not counterproductive. And if the UFO um, people yeah. are just focusing on the UFO stuff, the ghost people are just looking at the ghost stuff. Cryptids are focusing on cryptid stuff. Then how can we look at the full spectrum of strange phenomena? How can we see the similarities and commonalities with with all of it? Again, we we have to kind of unite in that sense. Um, whether it's through events, whether it's through education, shows, whatever. Um, I think all the all the different fields of research could do a better job in that in that regard. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing here because, like I said, I haven't been to a full-on ghost event. So, uh, but I imagine to contrast it to the UFO thing, like I feel like probably I've been to plenty of UFO ones, and those are always very, like kind of like what you said, they're very sort of honed in on specific cases, um, mm-hmm. and and each case has kind of got its own like unique thing. And I guess I guess now that I, I'm sort of like fleshing this out out loud, it's like maybe that is the case with the haunting with a ghost event, but it's like each, but the hauntings are all kind of like the same in a way, you know, it's like, okay, well, this house was haunted, and here's a creepy thing that we, that we picked up, and then it's like, well, here's another thing that we, that here's a, it's almost like people are recounting their own experiences and sort of sharing that information, 
Whereas on the UFO side, it's like sort of like someone retroactively recounting something that happened that they weren't even there. You know, they weren't there at Pascagoula. They're just presenting an insight into the Pascagoula abduction case. Um, you know, here's a here's a report on this event that happened in '83 or whatever, '73. Um, whereas somebody else at a ghost event would go up there and be like, "Yeah, I went to this house last year, and here's the stuff that happened." You know, so it's a very different sort of perspective uh, from the presenters, I think. I think. Like I said, I haven't been to – maybe they do present classic yeah. haunting cases, some of them. So, I mean, there's probably definitely got to be some variety, but uh, it's kind of what right. I imagine maybe might be part of the difference. Well, it also goes to, you know, um, when you're, you know, quote-unquote ghost hunting, it's easier to kind of get evidence uh, from haunted locations as opposed to, you know, if you're looking for the UFO stuff, um, that's a lot harder to find, you know, and again, let alone evidence of it. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't, yeah, it, it's very interesting. You know, and the investigative process is quite different from, from one to the other. Um, but, and maybe that's why it kind of differs. I don't know, but it's, it's certainly interesting that the audience that attends these events for sure, it's certainly different. Yeah. Yeah, there's a youthfulness to, and I noticed it at the crypt, at a crypto at the Lauren Coleman's uh, cryptozoology conference too. There's a certain youthfulness you don't necessarily see at the uh, at the UFO events as much. Um, you know whether that's because people sort of have gone gravitated more online in UFO world or what. I'm not sure, but it's uh, you, you, you have, the UFO field and phenomenon is very old school. Um, Despite how popular it, it seems nowadays, uh, it's still got this sort of very old schoolish vibe to it. You know, I mean, look at the show that was like so popular last yeah. year, the, the the drama that was like Blue Book. It's like very romanticized, mm-hmm. like like it's like like a like a like a 1960s ish uh, thing in a way. Um, you know, for as much as there's all this modern stuff happening, it seems like it has a very uh, like retro feel to it. Um, that you don't necessarily mm-hmm. see with like Bigfoot and cryptozoology and ghosts and stuff. So that might yeah. be that might sort of have a hand in how people perceive the different fields and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now one of the big things you talked about this at Fort Press, it's like a big chunk of the book, the Men in Black phenomenon. It's kind of like I don't want to necessarily right. pin you as like the as it as your forte, but this is sort of like one of the big mm-hmm. pillars of of what you've what you've delved into over time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and uh, what really fascinated me is is the fact that not many people are familiar with it. So um, you know that I, I think that's why I've kind of you know people think of me and they they're beginning to think uh, you know or, or link the two together. You know my research in this Men in Black stuff. Um, I mean, if you think about it, like you know the only other person really writing about this stuff is is Nick Redfern. You know, um, right, he's, right. he's looking into this. That's really it. So, um, and what I've started to notice is, you know, there's the stereotypical men in black that, you know, is made popular with the movies and all that, you know, the, the typical black outfit and the sunglasses and whatnot. But um, there, there are widely different descriptions of the same thing. It's, it's almost like the men in black phenomenon is taking on all these different forms. And people are tending to overlook it because it doesn't fit that stereotypical uh, definition of an MIB. That's what I've started to hone in on 
And that is really surprising me how frequent this is, this is happening, not just with UFO reports, but paranormal reports as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think, uh, I think you call them non-human entities. It's almost like we almost need to it's, – it's like almost like the Chupacabra thing where it's like the name has stuck now and you can't get out from under the name in a way. So it's like people think of men in black and they only think of the – the movie and the and the and the Albert Bender original sort of description of the Men in Black, but it's like it seems whatever this phenomenon is, it seems to have morphed into, as I said, what you describe in the book is sort of non-human entities. They're not necessarily even your classic guys in suits and the black car. It's just sort of like unsettling, eerie, humanoid, you know, human-like people. But there's something just off about them, and then something really weird will happen where, like, they'll vanish and, you know, you'll turn, you'll look away and they turn back and they're gone. It's like, okay, wait a minute. What's, right. you know, what was that all about sort of thing? Yeah. You know, and I also wonder if the black-eyed kids are a part of that phenomenon too. Yeah, you know, I don't have any case reports that I've investigated personally or talked with anybody personally about the black-eyed kids, um, yeah. you know. I don't know if it's just an anecdotal thing out there, but, you know, some of these MIB reports, you actually do have some evidence, not a lot, but some evidence to go off of. Um, and you have multiple witnesses, too. And people who are willing to go on the record. So um, it's interesting. Yeah, we'll talk about the case, uh, the one that got caught on video, because that's the one uh, people can find that, like, on YouTube, I'm sure, Um and uh, you know we'll put a link into it on the co- uh, on the coast website. We'll put <laughs> we'll put we'll put a link into it on the Banal of America website uh, where people can can check that out. Um, but talk about this video because it's you know as you say in the book it seems to be the only the only case of uh, of one of these men in black being caught on video surveillance. So it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. So I guess talk about that case. I, I know you talked you sort of alluded to. Uh, I believe you alluded to Shane Shane Sobar earlier, so he's he's the one that's connected to this yep. to this case, right? Correct. Yeah, and it's funny you should yeah. mention Coast because uh, Coast originally, you know, uh, put that video out there back in uh, 2009, I think, and uh, it kind of like spread from there. So I, I don't know if you were working at Coast at that time, but uh, thanks a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was interesting because um, you know people, you know, they hone in on that that video surveillance of these two stereotypical MIB that enter this hotel lobby um, out in uh, Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. And they're searching for the hotel's uh, manager at that time, but he wasn't working. Um, That's the video that you can find online. Um, But, you know, what I like about this case though, is we have presumably a close encounter with an MIB with multiple witnesses. The whole thing's caught on camera, which is super rare that you brought up before when it comes to this. Um, there's only like two other photographs out there that I would consider more legit in terms of so-called evidence. But um, again, what makes uh, the evidence legit is you have names, you have backstories, you have dates and times. Unlike most of YouTube and Reddit, plethora of bogus stuff, which you can't verify or disprove. Um, so I always, always caution people, don't believe everything you see out there um, or on the internet for that matter. But um, what's fascinating about that encounter is that was the trail end of Shane's experiences. That wasn't the beginning. 
it didn't really have uh, a primary UFO focus. Yes, he did have two UFO sightings. They were like these black triangles in 2008. Um, I think it was October and November 2008. Um, but then the men in black show up May of 2009, the following year. So that was, that was almost like, you know, uh, that was several months later. Now, what yeah, happened yeah. in between that time? Uh, Shane had, uh, well, you know, f- for what it's worth, he was, he was outside of his lawn one day, and um, he was just cleaning the gutters, you know, cleaning the leaves out of the gutters. And this man comes down the street, and he looks up at him, and he's just staring at him, and he's just smiling at him. And Shane's like, oh, can I help you? And the man's like, yeah, I, I built this house. And Shane's like, oh, Okay, you're, you're the original owner. All right, great. So he comes down off the ladder. Um, the man's just like, he's so pleased with the house. He's like, yeah, I built this house. So Shane gives him a tour, um, just an outside tour. And the man goes like, yeah, you see those hills? You know, those hills, like my, my daughters used to roll down those hills. Um, and he's like, those trees, they're so big now. And Shane's like, okay, yeah, great, great, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> it is a little weird. So, but then out of the blue, she, uh, this gentleman goes, okay, um, I got to go now. I'll see you next year. And then he just shuffles down the street. And the way Shane described it to me, it, it didn't even seem like his feet were even touching the ground. Um, okay, whatever. Could have just been just a funny old man. Uh, now, let me stop you just for a talking. moment because I had a question sure. when I was reading the book. So did he – he said I would see you next year. Um was that an allusion to the Men in Black incident, or was that just, did he ever come back? Did, like, because it never kind of, from what I could gather, it never got followed up on. Like, it wasn't something that happened a year later, or was that Men in Black thing a year later uh, to when he visited? That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, was it connected in some way? Maybe what, maybe this gentleman that Shane saw was an MIB. But here's where it gets weird, is he's talking yeah. with his neighbor, and his neighbor go, you know, he's describing this gentleman to his neighbor who had lived on the block for like her whole life. And the neighbor is just dumbfounded. She's like, that's, that's impossible. Like that man died several years ago. You know, it was like 15 years ago he died. Uh, it's impossible. So here we have a potential ghost that Shane saw. Um, right. But why did he say, I'll see you next year? Did this man have some connection to MIB? Again, that's why we need to look at this and, and, and realize that all of this is connected. After that event, um, I found this out later, you know, talking with his wife, um, that his wife talked to a totally different person in the neighborhood. And, and that neighbor um, said the same thing. What are you kidding me? That guy died. <laughs> and uh, so then they had all of this paranormal stuff happen in the house, um, you know, weird disembodied voices, things moving about on their own, um, you know, phantom footsteps, um, you know, items would go, would go missing, and then they would just reappear somewhere else, um, you know, really bizarre stuff. Uh, he yeah. had some weird phone issues he was dealing with. Again, these are, these are signs of a classic haunting. Now, all that's, you know, presumably done, uh, but it really bothered them. They were going to sell the house. They were terrified of this. 
what did it mean? Was it a trail end, uh, you know, of the UFO that he witnessed? I don't know, maybe. Um, then Shane decides to take a day off from work. That's when these MIB come in. Now, in a lot of these case reports, people say that the MIB can read minds, right? Right. Um, they can also, you know, anticipate where you're going to be or you're not going to be. Well, these guys aren't too bright because if they came in there looking for Shane and he's not working there, why are right. they coming in there? Maybe yeah, that was really weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. struck me as very strange too. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the whole point was not to go to Shane. Maybe it was to affect the other people. Maybe it was to be seen on camera. I don't know. There's all these questions again. You know, again, yeah. we have to look beyond the obvious and consider all these other possibilities. Possibly. There's something to this. I don't know. But very fascinating. They caught it on, on tape, but they never catch these guys leaving the hotel. They just catch them coming in, never leaving. Right. Yeah, it's very weird. The whole the whole thing is very weird, too, because, like, what makes it interesting in a sense, too, this is not to disparage what Shane saw or anything, but it's like we're not talking about some – he didn't have, like, some out-of-this-world, no pun intended – UFO sighting. It's not like he, he didn't see like a fucking alien or anything. He didn't, um, you know, he didn't take a fantastically clear picture of of the object that maybe, you know, maybe it was a government, you know, a secret weapon or a secret craft that he was right. supposed to have photographed. And so now we got to go and get on this guy's case and get the information and, and get it out of his hands. Because I've heard of stories like that where um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think it's included in the book, but there was a, there's an old story. And I don't remember the details of it. I'm terrible at these sort of things. But, like, someone came and took, you know, was like, I'm with either the government or the UFO organization. And, um, you know, can you give me the give me your stuff and we're going to process it and study it and, you know, we'll get back to you. And then, you know, the guy followed up later and it was like, this person never existed. So whoever it was just took yep. his stuff and left, took the photos that were really good or took the material or whatever. Um, so I guess to, to throw, continue to the point I'm making about the Shane story, that's what's so baffling about the case in a sense too, because it, it wasn't. It was just your average UFO sighting. It makes you wonder why that would pique the interest of whatever these these forces are, for lack of a better term. It's very interesting. Exactly. It, it, these things happen so randomly. It's like there there are a lot more impressive UFO sightings that do not have MIB, you know, um, factors at play. Yet, why this one? You know, yeah, you're right. His, his sighting was, it was certainly fascinating, but it wasn't like a, you know, right home about it. It was, and, and it also happened to be that in this area at that time, there were other Black Triangle sightings. So, you know, what, what made his unique? You know, what made his experience unique? Was there something that that strange gentleman who showed up on his property, you know, brought to this? Um, or did it, was there something involved with Shane's, um, you know, his, his history even before these things took place? You know, remember I mentioned to you how when you talk with somebody, they're not going to tell you everything, but the more you get to know them, they'll share more things with you. Um, it so happens that, you know, Shane had some, um, some other interesting experiences. Um, he, um, I, you know, I wouldn't consider him an abductee. But um, he remembers, you know, one instance of possible missing time. 
and a second involving seeing small people in his bedroom when he was younger. Um, he shared one encounter with me, um, I think it was in the seventh grade, which would have been sometime in the early 1980s. Uh, he and his friend both decided to take a shortcut through the, uh, the forest um, in order to visit. There was like this new corner store that had just opened up, but, um, you know, Shane had to be, he'd be back in time uh, for dinner. So he remembers taking this shortcut, right? But all he remembers is the sun was setting. His friend noticed this glowing orb coming at them through the trees. The sight was terrifying for whatever reason. Both boys took off running. But the only thing beyond that that Shane remembers is opening up his front door to the house and his mother asking where the hell he had been. You know, he, he was yeah. confused. He's like, I just gone to the corner store. Um, and, you know, his mother was telling him, yeah, we already had dinner an hour ago without you. So how did that happen? You know, then, then a second incident he recalls when he was, I think, 18. Um, and he saw, you know, he, he, he just moved into a new house. He woke up in the middle of the night, sensing a presence, and he sees these small people in the bedroom. But he's unable to move or scream. Now, could it just been sleep paralysis? You know, possibly. Um, but, you know, his, uh, his children had had strange experiences, too. Um, could it just be something about that region of, um, of Canada? Um, you know, his neighbors have reported some very interesting stuff. Um, again, it's, there's so much more to this case and so much to unpack from it that if we're just focused on, on the MIB experience, that's all we're going to see and we're going to miss the bigger picture. So when, when the case was originally examined, it was examined by Marsha Barnhart from uh, API, the Aerial Phenomena Investigations Team. Excellent team. Yeah. Um, and they looked into the MIB angle. They looked into, into the black triangles that he saw. They didn't really get into all this other paranormal stuff. You know, that, that's where I focused, uh, you know, my research on. And, um, and it's really fascinating. Just one of many. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, have you – I mean, we do a lot – I mean, feel free to speculate here. We do a lot of speculating on the show. Like, what do you – I mean, what – have you have you sort of like entertained any notions of what these non-human beings might be? Because um, it's very you know the original idea was like oh they're secret government agents, but it's like I think I think we can kind yeah. of, with the exception of a handful of cases probably, um, and and more more than likely like back in the day uh, as we were saying sort of that retro feel like uh, you know it seems more that 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 scenario seems more tenable. In the 50s and 60s sort of idea that where it's like nowadays uh, it's hard to believe in a sense, um, you know. So I guess what do you – because they, they're getting weirder too. They get they seem to get weirder and weirder and less sort of like, oh, this person just wants to scare me into not talking about UFOs because it's like back then it was easier to – I think it was easier to scare people into not talking about UFOs than it, than it is now because UFOs are like everywhere. So there, there's less stigma attached to it. But I – but to circle back around to the, the question, have you entertained any sort of idea of what, you know, what these things are, or maybe just like what their purpose might be? Yeah, um, no, it's a it's a great question, and it's something that that I ask myself all the time, you know, when I'm when I'm doing these cases. Um, it, well, I'll leave you with this. This um, back in oh, when was this? This was back in 2018. I was doing a presentation on the Men in Black, um, a, a longer version of the one that you saw at Fort Fest. And yeah. it was in Bordentown, New Jersey. 
So I was, I kicked off the whole month of October. Um, the organizers, Marty and Marsha, they, they designated a, a particular week for a different speaker. And it was, I think it was like every Tuesday, right, for the month of October. I was the first week talking about MIB. Then the, the following week was, um, was uh, Bruce Tango, uh, father of uh, Dave Tango from the Ghost Hunter shows. And then the third week was uh, Rosalind and Michael Lewis. And Michael Lewis, um, I wrote about in the book, he, he had direct encounters with these non-human entities. He didn't refer to them as MIB. He referred to them as Beastie Boys, right? That was, that was his little moniker for them, his little code word whenever they were around. Yeah. Now, um, he was speaking there, and the two event organizers, Marty and Marsha, they were on the street corner, and they're having a smoke break. And they see uh, coming from the direction of the, um, the pharmacy there, there's this gentleman coming across the street and he looks weird. You know, he's got this long coat. He's got, you know, I believe a hat, dark sunglasses. He looks kind of like a stereotypical MIB, but he's wearing jeans. And he, he comes across the street. They, they notice him. They look at each other like, oh, that's a little weird. They look back. He had already crossed the street. He traveled this great distance in, in a seemingly a split second. He's now right next to them. They look at each other like that was weird. They look back. Now he's all the way down the street from the venue on, on the other street. And they look at each other again. They're like, uh, where's Justin? We got to talk to him about this. Now this strange man is back at the corner of the street walking by the venue. He pops his head in almost like he's looking for somebody and pops his head out. And at that point, they get a clear uh, description or a clear, um, clear visual of this guy. This guy's, you know, very pale. He's, uh, he fits the classic mold of these non-human entities. And then he's now down the other street. What was the point of that? If he was there for me, well, again, it's not too bright. He's two weeks too late. Um, was he there for, for Michael, who had had these experiences before? Maybe. I talked to Michael about it, and Michael brought up an interesting point. He theorizes that maybe these guys just have to be in the vicinity of certain people, kind of like a um, like an information um, like extraction in a way, but like they're picking up on something, right? Kind of like a like a radar in a way, like they're they're just yeah. they're gathering all this info and then they're gone. I don't know how, you know, how accurate that is. Again, just more speculation, but, um, yeah. you know, some of the cases are like that. Some of the cases are information suppression, like you mentioned earlier. Um, right, what right. do these guys want? What's the point? Um, is it just to scare people? And maybe, or maybe there's something else that we haven't quite identified yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's like uh, you want to like – you want to like, you know, you joked about before. It's like, oh, I want to be abducted. It's like you, I, yeah, part of me is like, I want to encounter these one of these beings to see mm-hmm. what what you discern from the experience. But then, as you sort of allude to in the book many times, you mentioned sort of in the book, it's like these events happen, and like no matter how you think you're going to react in the talking, like you and I are right now, it's like when it actually happens either through the force of whatever the the anomalous phenomenon is or through your own human mm-hmm. nature, you never react the way you think you would. So it's like That's I may right. encounter one of these men in black and be like, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. I'm freaking out. 
even though right mm-hmm. now I'm like, oh, I'd like to talk to one of these entities to see if I could gather any sort of insight, you know. It's a, right. it's a conundrum. That's right. I, yep. I, like, that was a perfect example. Like, a lot of people say, oh, this is how I'm going to respond. This is how I'm going to react. Um, you know, there was a, there was a gentleman who, who had a strange encounter with this, this sniffing man. Um, he, was, he was doing a historical case, a historical UFO encounter um, at the Stonehenge apartment in uh, northern New Jersey, right? And he was just retracing the steps that these close encounters happened. And um, as he's sitting in the park, this man shuffles up to him, starts sniffing him like a bloodhound. And this this guy is a, yeah, this guy is a trained paranormal investigator. He knows how to respond to extreme situations. He's been trained by the best. He knows what he's doing. And how did he respond to this guy? He was dumbfounded. He was like, he was just basically like, still, he let this guy smell him, and then the guy takes off, and uh, he didn't even pursue after him. He didn't even, like – he was just kind of like, what just happened? <laughs> like, yeah, so yeah. What I what I've noticed with, with, with the phenomenon is tends to um, – it tends to affect people on levels that, um, that changes how they would normally behave or react under any other normal circumstances. Like with Rhea Baker, the, the med student, right? Why did yeah, she exactly. respond – in, in the, yeah, why did she respond in that way? People do the same thing with MIB. Um, you know, in some of these classic cases with MIB, um, like Dr. Herbert Hopkins, right? Uh, he opened up the door and let the guy in. Like, he doesn't know this man. He wouldn't have done this. Uh, I remember, I think he had said that in his original interview. You know, why did I open up the door and let this guy come in? You know, this guy phoned him um, saying, hey, I'd like to meet with you. And as soon as he hung up, there he is on his doorstep. So strange, right? People act out of character. Um, and, and that could also explain why we don't have evidence, why we don't have hard, solid evidence in all of these cases, especially with UFOs. Maybe they don't, maybe they're manipulating us on, in a sense that we're not even aware of. So that's yeah, the it's, <laughs> it's Yeah, it's scary. And it's, it certainly seems like that's kind of the case that they're, uh, even if they're just so unnerving that it puts you off your own game, in a sense, you know, it's uh, something mm-hmm. very perplexing about the whole thing. Now, talk a little bit about phantom photographers. Just like I said before, it's like people think about the classic MIBs, but there's all there's this milieu of characters, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I was just looking through the uh, normal paranormal uh, earlier today, and you mentioned. Um, you know, Tim Renner's done a lot of good stuff on these, like, uh, I don't know what these, like, sh- like Shadow Lumberjacks or something. So, like, there's all kinds of interesting, right. uh, and when we get Tim eventually on the show, we'll talk about that. But, but th- like I said, there's all kinds of interesting characters. And one of, the, one of the characters you mentioned in the book are these phantom photographers, which is a, a phenomenon that I had never heard before. So talk, talk about this. Enlighten the Banal of America listeners to uh, the phantom photographers <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah, so these are, again, another aspect, I think, of these, uh, these MIB, if you want to call them that, or these non-human entities. Um, you know, in the, in the 1960s, um, there, were, there were these anomalous events taking place with so-called phantom photographers, and they, they echoed the MIB experience. But, um, these, again, these curious individuals would, uh, would happen to show up out of nowhere, photograph UFO witnesses and even researchers, and then vanish, right, just, just gone. So... Um, 
I had the uh, the pleasure of um, of interviewing Beth Wareham, who is uh, Nick Redfern's editor, and she explained to me while working on one of his books, she'd experienced this, um, where she was she was working on the book, and then these MIB would just show up. Um, you know, apparently her, uh, Nick Redfern's other editor had experiences too, but she wouldn't talk to me about it. She wouldn't go on the record. I don't know why. But um, one of these men was outside of Beth's um, brownstone in New York City. And she said he didn't look out of place, but he had like a sort of large setup camera. And it wasn't one of those like old-fashioned cameras with a giant flashbulb, but to her it still looked like a rather large rig, especially in our you know digital era, slim this and, you know, nano pocket cameras right. here. Um, but in all yeah, the time... Yeah, pocket phones, there, yeah, cell phone me, cameras and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and all the time that she lived there, she had never uh, seen so uh, a person so fascinated with taking pictures of her brownstone like this man was. And then, um, you know, at some point, Beth was just like fed up with it. And she yelled at him and the man took off down the street and in what she described as a goofy, jerky, jerky with his legs. I find that description very fascinating because in the other reports of MIB encounters or, or NHE, non-human entities, whatever you want to call them, strange people. They move the same way, this, this odd, mechanical, clunky movement style. Um, you know, uh, there was another lady, uh, Geraldine Robinson. Um, she told me about her experience on the AC boardwalk in July of 1974. Um, she was there with her kids. Um, you know, her, uh, her daughter, Lisa, who was 12, and Tina, who was four. And she described this man who suddenly came out of nowhere and started taking photographs of them. But... Um, you know, and this is on this is on the AC boardwalk in the middle of July. It was a hot day. Everybody's wearing like um, you know swimsuits or, or, or shorts or whatever. This guy yes. shows up, completely in all dark clothes, long pants, long sleeve shirt, blazer, um, and she remembers that distinctly. She was like, "That was strange." He's taking photos of her. She yells at him, "The hell are you doing?" And then all of a sudden, she turns around, she turns back, and he's gone. And she's like, where the hell did he go? Like, you couldn't have lost sight of somebody like that. And sure enough, this is what happens with these phantom photographers. When you encounter them, they'll just take off. Um, they just show up snapping photos. Um, but why? What, what's the point? Uh, another guy interviewed in the book, um, Dan Doty, um, he had a plethora of strange experiences involving, you know, um, close encounters with Bigfoot multiple times. Um He's had UFO experiences. Uh, he's had weird premonitions. Well, there was one incident in 1997 where uh, I think he was coming off of his, his, uh, his shift of working overnight, and he sees this helicopter 30 feet off the ground, uh, you know, just hovering there. And inside the helicopter is this man with this mustache and dark hair, and he's pointing this large camera at him on this vacant lot across from his property, when he, you know, when he gets home from work. Now, yeah. Dan doesn't remember any sounds with the helicopter's entrance or exit. It's just, it's just there. Um, you know, a lot of these phantom helicopter uh, sightings, I think, are, are very similar to the phantom photographers. People don't see these things coming in. They'll just show up. Um, yeah. It's almost like an extension of the weird experiences, uh, and, and it seems to be taking on this form. What is, what is the MO? I, I don't know. Um, is it like some sort of surveillance, some sort of data collection? Yeah, yeah, we can get all conspiratorial, but there's not enough evidence to, to, to conclusively say 
this is why this has happened. It just happens. Um, very strange. So yeah, it's almost, and you also, you know, you we speculate, okay, surveillance, but then it's also you, you, it, you can also turn it on its head and be like, well, what if this is, like you said, it seems maybe it's an extension of the phenomenon where it's like whatever this thing is, it's like let's see how, let's see how this guy reacts if. <laughs> If, if we show up and start taking pictures or let's see how people react to that. You know what I mean? It's like, maybe it's, it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Who knows? It's very, it's very, very weird. And yeah. I, you made a point just now and it's in the book too. It's like, uh, I thought it was really interesting because I hadn't really dug too deeply into the men in black thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and these non-human entities, what you point out in the book is that, uh, very often when you like what happened with Nick Redfern's editor, when you confront them, then they, mm-hmm. as scary as they seem, they back down right away and take off or get out of there or anything like that. They just they 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 bail on the scene right away. So it's like so as scary as they seem, they're actually mm-hmm. kind of not, <laughs> more scared of us than we are of them, kind of thing, like a wild animal or something. That's right. And you know, John Keel writes about this when he used to you know go after these guys. You know, he would he would receive calls that they're in the vicinity. He'd rush over, they're gone. He would miss him by mere minutes. Um, Timothy Green Beckley, right? Um, he's a he's a pioneer in UFO researcher and investigator. He used to he went out with uh, James Mosley back in uh, in the late 1960s. There there was a um, and it's one of the photos that I have on my site where um, you know there was a UFO researcher named um, uh, Jack Robertson, and he was in the one building, and his uh, his wife um, Mary kept seeing this guy uh, in the you know, just standing there watching people go in and out of the building. And she got really nervous about it because he was there every single day. Now, Jack Robinson was, or Robertson was a very prominent UFO investigator back then, and especially in that area. So Mary phones uh, Tim and Jim and is telling them about this. And they decide to take a trip over there to kind of confront this guy. They didn't tell Mary. They didn't tell Jack about it. They just drove over there. And sure enough, they see him, they see this guy in the doorway, just standing there. Uh, Timothy snaps a photo, and um, then they circle around the block looking for a place to park. They do, and then they run back to the, to the spot where this man was. He's gone, and he never shows yeah. up from that day forward. It was like they went after him, and then he's gone. He's, like, scared off. So, yeah, these guys are very frightened for as as threatening and as menacing as they appear to be apparently they're very timid and they're very uh they're very frightened off by us so i don't know it's weird. yeah it's very uh it's, it's very very strange now another story i want to talk about from the book and uh I'll, again i'll have the links up at uh i almost did it again i'll have the links up at Benal america <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'm gonna be on coast to coast later tonight doing the news so i i must be already in uh in coast mode but um <laughs> the the story here. Uh, let me get his name here. The because I I it was great because I read the book. I'm talking about the Gary Sudbrink uh, case, and as I said, I'll have the link up on the Banal of America page for folks to check out, and folks can go to uh, normalparanormal.org and go through. It's on page two right now, as of uh, as of July 17th, 2020. Page two of the of the news stories that you have on the site. Creepy calls from a strange entity. Because uh, I was psyched because I read the book, and I was like, I want to, 
hear this thing. I was going to actually ask you, but it slipped my mind in all the chaos of uh, getting the show together and everything. I was like, I, I want to hear this. Mm-hmm. I want to hear this call. And and um, and so you have it on the on the site. Do you mind if we play? I'm not going to play it now, but if I throw in a little clip of it, just like so people can kind of get an yeah. idea of what it is. Is that right? Yeah, you can, you cool? can play as much or as little as you want. You do it. Yep. <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I'll play a little bit of it uh, here. I'll tell you who it is. Yeah. Do you want to speak to him? Yeah, who's this? Steven, are you playing games with me or what? Huh? Steven, if you're playing games, I'm going to kick your ass. So how long are you going to be back from Texas? Huh? You being impersonated by the other voice. Yeah, this is you, Steven, you idiot. You're pissing me off. Jerk. I'm going to get you one. Let's see what it says. Review. One new call out of area. Is Steven out of the area? Are you going to be back from Texas? Wait, say that again? You are being impersonated by the other voice. Wait, hold on. Is Steven out of the calling area or what? What do you mean you don't know? He's in Queens. Who are you talking? I don't know who the fuck. Hello? Hello? There's Gary's sudden break in there. Who is this? Sounds like a freaking robot. Hello? How long are you going to be back from Texas? What was that again, sir? You were being impersonated by the other voice. Oh, be quiet, I'm fine. Sorry, would you see that again? It's creepy as hell, as folks just heard. So I guess tell this story, because I was trying to wrap my mind around it. Like, what the... This is one of those... And, and kudos to you, man. The book is, like, filled with these kind of stories that, like, just do not defy any... Any genre, any... It's like, what... It's like, what... What is this? What what happened to this guy? This does not even make any sense, but it's so it's just so so weird. So I guess tell tell the Gary story here, um, you know, and explain sure. what people just heard on that clip. Yeah, so um in 1993, uh Gary Sudbrink was an Air Force captain assigned to medical work in uh San Antonio, Texas. And um on February 7th of that year, he decides to make a surprise trip to visit friends and family in Long Island, New York. Now, Gary doesn't tell anybody, not even his superiors. Uh, you know, he tells me he forgot to. Um, he's, um, he's waiting there to board the aircraft, uh, the airplane to go to Long Island, and he talks with two different men at the airport, uh, both of which wanted information from him. This is where the, the very beginning of the story gets a little strange. These men were very fascinated with him. They, they both wanted to know his name, and they were persistent about it. But what prompted that question, um, you know, he can't remember. He just remembers they were like, you know, what, what's your name? What, what do you do? Where do you live? Whatever. It's almost like data collection. Right. All right, whatever. He gets on the plane. doesn't think much of it. He gets to New York. Um, the, at that time, when he gets to New York and he surprises his dad, his dad and him meet with um, a guy named Coleman Von Kovetsky. Now, Von Kovetsky was the director of the Intercontinental UFO Research and Analytic Network. 
Um, he was, from what I uh, did some research, he was the unofficial spokesman for the UFO hearings held at the UN in 1978. He's a good friend of the Prime Minister of Granada, Sir Eric Gary, who helped those uh, hearings get started. Now, Gary's oh, wow. father was there. Yeah, he, uh, Gary's father was there to discuss the UFO sighting. Um, they have their report, whatever. They, they meet with them. They go back home. Now, it is about 10.30 p.m. at night. Uh, Gary calls his longtime friend, Mike, who had no prior knowledge of him being in town. Mike said, uh, so he calls up Mike. Mike is then like, yeah, you, uh, you already called me, Gary, previous day. Um, and uh, Gary's like, what, what are you talking about? I, I didn't call you. And, um, and Mike is like, yeah, you did. And you sounded like you had a stuffy nose and you were coming down with a cold. So, you know, that's why I didn't want to hang out with you. And, and Gary had to convince this guy that that wasn't him. Apparently, the impersonator Gary had flown in through LaGuardia, but the real Gary came in through JFK, so that was an inconsistency there. Um, but yeah. as they're talking, uh, call waiting comes through, and that's where the first strange phone call begins. And thank God Gary, he's no st- a stranger to this, to high strangeness. He presses um, record on the answer machine, and that's what you hear in the first call. Um, yeah, it's I don't know very. If you're play that or what? Yeah, we can. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know when I'll. I, I thought I had already stuck it in, but we can play it now. It doesn't matter. I'm going to have to go in and uh, clean up, clean up the show a little bit from <laughs> from some of the confusion oh, earlier. Okay. But yeah. Um. So yeah, go ahead. So so it's what yeah. struck me hearing it. Um. Was that the person almost sounded kind of drunk? That was kind of my takeaway, yeah. but I I couldn't. But even still, it was like it, – it doesn't make any sense who would – you know, there's no real rational explanation for who would be calling this guy drunk, repeating the same random stuff mm-hmm. over and over again. Like you mentioned in the book, it sounds almost like a recording or, or yep. in my mind, almost like a script or something. Like he – Gary kept trying to get right. him off script, but the guy just kept repeating the same like three or four phrases. It's very odd. That's right. And, and talking with Gary about this, you know, um, at first we thought it was a recording, you know, I mean, for, for years he thought it was a recording, but yet when you actually analyze the, the, the audio, there are slight nuances in it that, that seem to be different. Um, it doesn't seem to be like a recording at all. Now, it, that was the first call. So um, right. the caller calls back two more times that night. So a total of three times that same night. And then he calls back a f- another time the next day. Um, and what's interesting is, excuse me, when I looked at, um, at the, uh, the instances of the call, of, of how many times this voice speaks, it seems to speak, th- there are less instances. Um, like the first call had, I think, 17 instances the second had 16 the third had 15 then the fourth on the next night had 17 again it also becomes less audible too the more that that the calls are are or i'm sorry the the more that the that the caller is is on the phone um right now i find this interesting because it's similar in nature to how people report mib speech you know um it's very dry mechanical robotic style um, that's what I think has led Gary to believe that these could be uh, calls from MIB. Um, again, only speculation, 
but the things that, that this caller was saying weren't even grammatically correct. Like, you know, he would say like, uh, how long are you going to be back from Texas? But that doesn't make any sense because uh, he's in New York. He, you know, yeah. he, he was, it just doesn't grammatically compute. Um, but then the voice, you're being impersonated by the other voice. So that's striking because remember why Gary was on the phone to begin with. He was calling his friend. He said that he had already called prior. He was being impersonated. This wasn't the right. first uh, instance that Gary was, was, that his doppelganger was seeing or experienced. You know, his brother, uh, you know, claims that uh, a doppelganger Gary was driving alongside him one day, um, making faces through his car, trying to get the brother's attention. When the brother looks over, uh, the, this weird Gary just drives off. And it was driving the same car that Gary drives. But the thing is, that incident took place in, in New York on a separate occasion, years prior to these calls. But at that moment in time, Gary, yeah, he was in New York at that time, but his car wasn't. It was back in Texas. So how right. did this impersonator have this exact same car? You know, again, what do you classify this under? Um, very strange stuff. It's a weird phone call. I guess that's all you can describe it as. But then the, the caller gets into other things that are just weird, like, um, you know, keep your eyes to the skies, you know, near Orion. Um, well, they went out and they, they kept their eyes to the skies that night looking at Orion. They didn't see anything in the sky. Um, nothing, you know. So Yeah, so, so yeah. Point? Yeah, yeah. Again, it's kind of like it goes back to the, to, the Shane, to the Shane story in a sense where it's like, why – why do certain why do these certain people like experiences experience these very 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 weird things that defy as we said defy categorization defy even like like I mean I can't even put my finger on what exactly was the what 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 was behind these calls to this guy like and and there's no you know the, I guess the only if you're gonna be like a skeptic the only thing would be like someone. He kept saying, like, he thought it was his brother messing with him and stuff. So it was like, um, you know, so maybe some kind of prank caller. But after all these years, um, somebody would – if it was someone playing a joke on somebody else, like the – the you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I think it's kind of like common practice. If you play a joke on somebody, you have to kind of, like, tell them you did it eventually so you can get the payoff of having – bamboozled them you know what i mean so so if it was someone joking around with him they would have told him by now well absolutely and that's why he thought it was um his brother steven because um steven was the one who saw him you know in that doppelganger a few years prior you know um he that's that's why he thought you know the last thing he was going to jump to is oh this is paranormal in nature he's like all right knock it off (laughs) this is ridiculous and you can hear it. You can hear his uh, his frustration in the phone calls. Um, you can hear his family in it too. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, very fascinating. And and again, it's a great little snapshot of how um, people tend to respond to this stuff, right? Like it's it's so bizarre that like you just you don't even want to deal with it. It's like this is just silly. Like enough, you know. Yeah. So, weird yeah, stuff. very but weird. Yeah. All right, now before we head out for the night, uh, Stuart, who was the guy 
the quick-thinking individual uh, in England who called in to the show to listen uh, managed to hear us. He wants to know if he can come on the air. I think he has a story or something. So, Stuart, we're going to bring you on the air. Sure. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, so we can't. We can't uh, we can't delve too deeply into something, but uh, but but uh, I want to reward you for your diligence in managing to find a way to listen to the live broadcast. So, uh, what's going on, Stuart? Hi, hi. Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm you know I fell asleep really early. I was exhausted and then woke up in the middle of the night. So I thought I'd listen live. So yeah. Well, there you go. Um, it's it's um, yeah. I feel like I feel very um, what's the word? I feel very privileged to have this exclusive. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's just the story. Well, you know, I had a strange thing happen to me, uh, with Justin, I had, a, I had a shadow people experience when I was little, um, which really, um, well, we, it made me like really terrified to be in the dark in my bedroom for several years. And it was like, it was really freaky. Um, but it goes, it goes back to all these weird experiences that you've been talking about, all these mundane weird experiences i think and how um some people aren't going to ufo conferences thing but they are going to things about weird things i think it's good to talk about these things because um it was actually you tim when you had jason offert on and he was doing a shadow people book that um i uh when i heard that i was like oh i'm not the only one and actually there was i don't know there's some kind of level of stress that just sort of disappeared after that day because um i think being able to talk about it with someone who you know is not just going to um, dismiss you out of hand and, um, you know, be able to accept that what you've done, you know, what you've experienced might be real and that it's really strange. Um, I think that's, um, I think that's quite helpful for a lot of people, but I, I think that uh, a lot of people might be walking around having experienced this stuff, like, like the man who, you know, had the guy who said he'd built the house um, come around. I mean, he probably, you know, that was a strange thing that happened. But, you know, he probably didn't, re- well, he obviously reported that, but stuff like that might be going all the time and people might be getting really freaked out thinking they're the only ones. So I think it's good to talk about these things, uh, have a place to talk about them. So, yeah. That's Absolutely. Well, that's what Justin does. He, he takes these stories from folks uh, and, and, and tries to unravel them if he, if, 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 if he can. So, yeah. yeah. What do you think of that observation, uh, Justin? Yeah, well, you know, Stuart, you, you know, it's, I think the best thing we can do is just to, you know, as, as investigators and researchers, is to just shut up and listen to people, you know, just to, just to hear the stories, to, to, to set aside the judgment, you know, okay, what, let me try to figure this out. Let me try, try to rationalize this. Like, we just need to be quiet and just listen to the people tell their stories and, you know, share their experiences and feel comfortable doing that. And, and I'm glad that, you know, what, you know that, you can, that you can share your experiences, that you know that you're not the only one out there who's dealing with this. Even though, even if you may not be able to classify it, you know, maybe it goes beyond shadow people, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's something much more. Um, you know, you need to, uh, I'm glad when I hear from some people who are, who are more comfortable now because other people are talking about this. So, so thank you. Oh, no, it's great. Well, yeah, I, well, can I just have one more thing? I'd just like to add that, you know, when when I heard about it, I I I sort of realised that it was less important knowing what it was and explaining it, and more important to just know that I wasn't the only one. So I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, it didn't. It's not going to matter. I, I, I've accepted that I'm never going to be able to understand what happened, but but just that it, I wasn't the only one who uh, it happened to. Um, I mean, yeah. So 
yeah, so thanks for that. Thanks for getting all these stories out. And, um, you know, yeah, there, there might absolutely. be people out there experiencing... Sorry, what's that? Yeah, well, um, absolutely. You know, with these experiences, you know, we may not be able to explain them away because maybe they're not meant to be explained away. Maybe they're just meant to be experienced. Yes, there you go. exactly. Brilliant. All right, Stuart, I'm going to put you uh, back on hold so you can hear the end of the show. So thank you. Uh, and it's, it's, I love you, Stuart, but I hope you're not the only one who heard tonight's episode. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> hopefully this is recorded well. Um, but I'll put you on hold so you can hear us wrap it up. All right, buddy? But thanks very much. Have a great one. Thanks for thanks. calling in, man. Thanks for uh, finding a way. I appreciate it. All right, there we go. Um, so... The book uh, came out a couple of years ago. It's called The Spectrum, uh, Glimpses of the Paranormal and Encounters with the Strange. I assume folks can get that at Amazon and all the normal places you can pick up books, right, and through the website? Yeah, yeah, Amazon's the, the place uh, to get it. And um, if you can't find it in your local bookstore, then request it. Exactly, yeah. A lot of folks, they, don't, they probably don't even realize that. You can go down to Barnes & Noble and be like, hey, I want uh, – you know, I want um, I want the Spectrum by Justin Bamforth. They can look it up and they can order it, and it'll come to the bookstore. You can come get it. So, uh, you know, if you're not someone who wants to do Amazon or you want to even look at even Barnes and Noble needs our help nowadays. So, if you can, if you want to support your local Barnes and Noble or your br- brick and mortar bookstore, they can uh, they can get them for you anyway. Um, and the website, of course, is normalparanormal.org. Uh, what do you? Oh, that's my Alexa going off now. I'm telling you, man, maybe you're like some kind of like technical <laughs> tech you got some kind of technical curse or something going on. So so uh no, that actually maybe. happens. I don't know if you have if you have one of those. If you it's a certain combination of words will set her set her off sometimes if you say the wrong if it sounds like if it's I don't want to say her name now, she's gonna start up again, but if it sounds like her name she'll <laughs> all of a sudden start it's very freaky and, and annoying. It's like it's not what I'm doing. It has nothing to do with you. Um, so, uh, so what do you have going on now? Is it uh, how you? How, how, I assume you're holding up all right through the pandemic. Uh, has this impacted your, uh, you know, your work at all, or, or, uh, you know, how 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 have you seen? Have you seen any? And especially, I guess, in your case too. I mean, it's in knowing. Because you talk to a lot of people who experience strange things, um, and if she counts us down, just we can go like a couple minutes past it. So don't worry about it. Um, but uh, two things, as I was saying, like uh, has the has the pandemic affected your work at all? And also, has have you seen any sort of or heard anything from people experiencing strange stuff through this? Because this is a very disorienting time for all of us. So I would imagine that. Uh, uh, for certain people who might be prone to strangeness, this might be rife for uh, weirdness to happen. Yeah, no, I, excellent question. Um, you know, I haven't seen any correlation between the pandemic and strange events. Um, if anything, people are home more, so um, I'm able to, you know, reach them uh, more you know, easily. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot more interviews with people, um, you know, phone calls, especially uh, yeah. emails. So, so that's been great. That's been kind of like a blessing. It's, you know, it, it, certainly strange times we live in, but um, the, the strange events um, on a supernatural level, um, those will still go on until the end of time, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I just, I just encourage people to keep their eyes peeled. 
to be more observant, um, to look beyond what we think it is that it appears to be, or, 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 or you know, to look beyond what it appears to be and what it is that we think we know, and to kind of question everything. You know, um, do your own research. You know, I, I've given a lot of people a lot of uh, things to, to go look at, you know, and, and don't just read my book, read other people's books, you know, but educate yourself with the whole gamut of, of high strange, uh, high strangeness events, you know, everything, because you'll, you'll begin to see a pattern, as I've noticed, and you'll begin to see that all of these things could be related and connected in one way or the other. And the people, the people are at the heart of all of this. So that leads me to believe that maybe the phenomenon needs us more than we think. So. Yeah, I think so for sure too. That's uh that's a great observation, yeah. Uh the people are at the uh yeah, it takes two to tango. You need the witnesses or else there is no phenomenon, right? <laughs> uh kind of like Maybe. if a tree falls in a forest kind of thing. Uh well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. I I want to apologize in a sense. I I felt like I was a little distracted at the beginning there because of these technical problems and uh I'll, I'll shoot you a message as soon as I know, which should be hopefully like in five or ten minutes that this that this recorded. Um, I'm going to assume it did. If they're counting us down, it says we're broadcasting. Stuart called in. I mean, uh, I'd be very surprised if somehow there was no record of what just went down for the last two hours, uh, aside from Stuart's memory <laughs> and our memories of what just happened. So in the event that you know in the freak event that that happens we'll figure it out we'll get you back on the show we'll do it all over again don't worry uh if you don't mind um but i'm hoping yeah. I, i'm confident i'm 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 uh, cautiously optimistic <laughs> might be the best way to put it that uh that we're all set so i think we're going to be okay um and and uh and and folks can check out the book the spectrum Glimpses of the Paranormal and Encounters with the Strange. And, of course, they want to check out the website, normalparanormal.org. And uh, they can find you on Twitter also at uh, Norm Paranormal. Uh, and uh, I got that linked up through my Twitter account as well. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Justin. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking to you. Uh, this is a lot of interesting stuff that we've never really gotten into on Banal America too deeply. So I enjoyed the stories. I think these were great uh Folks, uh, folks will probably enjoy listening to these around the campfire uh, later on next week or next weekend or something like that, or later this weekend if we can get the uh, show out in time. So good, good campfire stories, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, happy to be part of it, Tim, and I'll, I'll be in touch in touch soon. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Have a great evening and a great weekend and a great summer, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, you got it. See ya. Good night. There you go, folks. That was Justin Bamford, author of The Spectrum, Glimpses of the Paranormal and Encounters with the Strange. Uh, yeah, as I said, I hope uh, I hope that all this went down without a hitch. Very disorienting to uh, start the program and have the folks in the chat room saying they can't hear anything. So, uh, And I tried it a few times on my end and definitely was not loading the live program. So... Uh, whew, knock on wood. I'm like nervous right now because <laughs> I know I know I'm gonna check, and I just hope that everything went off uh, without a hitch. Because I would I'd feel like a real ass having to uh, to ask Justin to come back and and uh, redo this whole thing again. Um, you know, it, he gave us a couple hours of his time, so it's uh, on a Friday night, which is 
you know, busy time for some folks. So, you know, so hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, you're listening to this uh, later on this weekend and everything went down uh, without a hitch. And uh, hopefully next week we don't have uh, any similar issues because, of course, we'll be back next week with another edition of Ben All of America, another session in the summer of strangeness. Our guest will be Kiki Dombrowski. She is a, a tarot reader down in Nashville. Uh, you can find out more on her at kikidombrowski.com, K-I-K-I-D-O-M-B-R-O-W-S-K-I. She has uh, spent a long time exploring mythology, sacred destinations, high strangeness, supernatural events, witchcraft, divination. Uh, she's got a master's in medieval English. So we're going to get into that kind of stuff, divination. And uh, uh, she did um, – I don't even know what you'd call it. I'll, I'll have to get her to talk more about it. Um, but she did some kind of like uh, divination thing for me on on Twitter a few weeks ago, um, and it was it was just just I just got like you know the Twitter version, which is like two tweets, and it was like this is really interesting. I want to I want to find out more about how she does this and how she gets this information and how the process works. So we're gonna get into all that. Um, and we're going to get into her work as a tarot reader down there in Nashville because that, that's really fascinating. I don't think we've ever had anybody on the show who uh, who does this. This is their job. So it'll be really fun to find out more about that. So that's going to be Kiki Dombrowski next Friday night, July 24th at 9 p.m. live. And uh, God willing, uh, we'll be broadcasting live uh, and there won't be any more technical issues. So... With that said, until then, this is Tim Benall thanking you for listening. Thanks to all the folks in the chat room who valiantly tried to get to the bottom of uh, what was going on. And big thanks to Stuart, who managed to uh, come up with a way to listen live. And as I said, I love you, Stuart, but I hope you weren't the only one (laughs) one listening to that show. And, uh, yeah, on that note, until next week, this is Tim Benall thanking you for listening and signing off.